This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 179. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I am not here with my bald, beautiful co-host. I miss him so much. He couldn't make the podcast today because he had a, pre, a pre-existing a pre appointment that he had to be at. So that's just the way it goes when we have guests on the podcast today. And because we have a guest on the podcast today, and because I don't have my co-host today on the podcast, unfortunately, I have no pre-episode banter conversation to have that me and Chris normally have. So I'm just going to go straight in this episode. We have a treat for you today because uh, we have uh, Steve Ernest who is, uh, I don't actually know what your role is, Steve. I'm just going to BS, and then you can correct me later. Steve is a uh, co-owner of a recording studio that's been around since 1981. And it's a studio that's been around the block. They're, they're in LA, or they're actually on the outskirts of LA. And they've worked with the likes of No Doubt, Sublime, Pennywise, Van Morrison, Foreigner, Guns N' Roses, a bunch of other bands like that. And Steve... And Steve has done something really cool that I thought was worth coming on the podcast to talk about. And that is bringing that sort of recording studio. I call it like the legacy era of recording studios, like the golden days when, you know, you're selling gold and platinum albums left and right and everyone's buying albums and it's, it's easy to make the music industry work. Now back in, I mean, getting through the huge dip in, in the 2000s and the, the teens, and now we're kind of coming back again in the stream era. Steve has been a big part of bringing this studio along for the ride into the modern era. And I think he's done some really cool stuff along with that. So first of all, I just want to say, hey, Steve. Hey, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Huge fan. Well, dude, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. And uh, we were joking about this before. We're both audio nerds and and you more than even I am uh, an audio nerd because like you run a very legitimate studio and and you're in your office now with like echoey room, <laughs> computer mic. I didn't even have headphones until my wife found them for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and just for anyone listening, chances are it doesn't sound as bad to you as it actually sounds because we have like really cool software to like really zhuzh things up. But uh, first of all, thanks for coming on the podcast, Steve, and, and coming on to share your story with us. So just to start things out here, you're telling me an interesting story, kind of how you got into this in the first place, because in most cases, you never or rarely see an old guard legacy studio that came up the old school way, really adapting and embracing the new era. And even more, and, and that's why so many of them have fallen off. Like, unfortunately, I, I don't ever want to see those studios shut down. That's just, that's just the, that's just the unfortunate reality of so many of those studios. But the few that actually come into the new world, very even fewer of those are actually partnering with and pairing with younger people like you who are part of the new wave of home studios. And, and I say home studios liberally, it's really just people that are approaching the business of recording much differently. So can you tell me the story of like how you even got connected with the studio in the first place? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people that wind up in this business, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to wind up ever owning a studio. <laughs> that wasn't really what my trajectory was. But I sort of a funny story is that while I was going to high school many, many years ago, I was the guitar player that, you know, always came to class with the, you know, with the guitar around his back and long hair. And it was like that guy. You were that guy. <laughs> I was that guy. I think I was coined Steve Metal. <laughs> Seriously. And in a freshman year of high school. And anyway, this girl saw me, uh, you know, at the bleachers practicing or what I should have been in class and came over and said, you know, you're really good. I, I should introduce you to my dad. He's a record producer. And I was like, oh yeah, like, who is he? And she said, Wynn Davis. And I was like, okay. And I like went home and looked him up and was like, oh my God, this guy's done all these records that I like love, like, you know, worked with Dio and Black Sabbath and all these just like, like Guns N' Roses and 
So anyway, I came back to school the next day and I was like, yes, you should definitely introduce me to your dad. I want to meet this guy. I had a local gig coming up. I was playing with some cover band. These guys that were like twice my age doing like 80s rock covers, you know. And I, I looked down at uh, in the audience, turned up there. She is and there he is. And after the gig, he came up to me and he's like, hey, man, you were great. You should uh, come by the studio sometime. And he gave me his, his business card. And after celebrating for a couple of days, I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm going to finally meet this guy and meet the studio. Uh, I went there and we just sort of formed this this bond and relationship. And I think probably because that's how he started was as like a guitar player. And he had opened the studio just to record his band in the early 80s. Like, oh, this would be great. I'll just like find this space. And, and you know, as you know, you open a studio and then it just becomes like, oh, my God, how do I pay the overhead? And then you're playing a whole lot less and running a studio. Which back then was was even more, way more overhead than than it is now to start a, a typical studio these days. Like back then, it took a massive investment, and that was almost always financed either by an investor who wanted their money back or a loan who was obviously going to get their money back. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So the fast forward a little bit. You know, Win started calling me to come to the studio and play on recordings. I, I went up playing on like a Dawkins record, and again, I'm like a teenager. So for me, this is like a giant thrill, and I'm, I'm getting paid a little bit. I'm getting to meet all these amazing people, and I'm in the process, this is like some fairy tale story. My mom was, of course, the one dropping me off. I was like a 14, 15 year old kid, and and the two of them met, and they wound up falling in love and getting married. So Win becomes my stepdad, which is the next sort of phase of this whole thing, and. So I, I wound up going to, I played with a bunch of artists. I played with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and all these, these people as like a teenager. And, and I wound up going to Berkeley uh, Music School on the East Coast. And, and it's funny because all this time, man, you know, like when had given me Pro Tools lessons when I was like 14 or 15 years old. And at that point, like when I was a junior in high school, I was like going to people's houses and recording them with like, you know, an eight track and like three SM57s. I was like, oh yeah, I can record your band. And I really had little to, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was figuring it out as I was going. So I feel like all of this time I was like moving myself towards where I was going to wind up eventually. I just didn't know it. I still thought in my head, like, well, I'm a guitar player and I'm going to just go and, and play on records and play live. But even when I got to Berkeley, like the thing that was clear for me that set me apart was not so much my playing because everyone's great there, but more that I would bring in like a raging assignments and they would ask like, how did you record this? Like what studio did you go to? And I'm like, no, I did this in my attic with like pro tools and a couple of microphones, you know? So I started to get this like indication that this might actually be the thing that I have to bring to the table is like arranging, of course, writing and playing, but really just like the recording aspect of this stuff. I moved back home and start working at the studio and you know, a couple of years in sort of have a chat with Wynn, you know, and he says like, look, you know, I've been doing this now for 30 something years and there is going to be a point where I'm going to want to be a lot less involved in spending all of my hours in this ring that I've spent the last 30 something years and, you know, building a career. If this is something you really want to do, like you have to figure out a way to make this actually make sense. And it was super scary. I mean, I remember going home that day, just being like, oh my God, like I, let's talk about like imposter syndrome. Like they're huge shoes to fill. And I also don't want to feel like I'm the reason that this like legendary place is going <laughs> to come to an end or, so I had to, to quickly sort of think about like what I knew, like what I could bring to the table to make sure that this place that already had amazing bones and a legacy could continue on in a time where everything is like home studio. And I think that pretty much brings us to current. That's been like the last like decade, pretty much. 
Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just thinking as you're telling this story, I'm like, this sounds like the most generic movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like a, a bad 90s movie where it's like this kid just got his guitar, the bleachers just playing, and some famous producer meets him and is like, hey, c- hey, dude, come by the studio and like... <laughs> <laughs> and then fast forward through the generic montage scene with the, the bad music playing, like the producer marries your mom and you start, you start recording on famous records and that's how you make it in the music business. Like, <laughs> who's, the, the question is who's going to direct it. If it's Michael Bay, there's going to be explosions. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be hundred percent directed by one of the rom-com directors out there. I don't know yeah. their names, but it's, it's the same person who's done like all of those, like the holiday, that movie, that kind of totally. stuff. So, yeah. so to bring this for not to not to like diminish any of that. I'm just like it just sounds like a generic movie because it is like that's why I laugh when I tell yeah, it because it's yeah. so it's as ridiculous still when I say it out loud. All right, let's so let's take this back further. I don't think I ever actually said the studio's name. It's Total Access Recording for anyone who's curious, and for anyone who's who was in LA for the past like 30 years in the music studio world, you've likely heard of that. But Wynn said something that that you said was daunting. It was something that that makes you it shakes you as a creative who is like you were very passion led getting into this business, which is how pretty much everyone listening right now got into the business. They, they were, they passionately followed something that they were interested in in a creative field. And they, and then they had this, what I call the, Oh shit moment. James have fun bleeping that out. Uh, the Oh shit moment. Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. Moment. <laughs> that was for my editor just to play with them a little bit. Yeah, they have the Oh shit moment where they say to themselves, what Wynn said to you, which is you have to have a way to make this actually make sense as a business. So from that moment on, like what did that, what did that process look f- like for you as you start to work with Wynn in total access recordings to, to make it make sense in the modern era of, of recording? Yeah. So there were a few things. I think the, the first thing that we both talked about that was an obvious is that you know, the space that we have is like 3,500 square feet. So it's not, it's not Capitol Records, but it's also not home studio. It's a huge space. And one of the things we realized is one of the rooms that we have, which used to function as like yet another isolation room, was like never getting used. I mean, it just, it just wasn't, you know, because even if we have a full band that's tracking at the same time, we still have two rooms that we can use. And, and so we had this like back room that while it was great to have just extra space, because why not? It wasn't being used all the time. So we wound up finding a producer that turned that back room into like essentially like a personal suite for him. But it's also a space for him to just house all of this gear. He does post-production work. So most of the time he's like on the road doing like the American Idol thing and working for it. So he's not even there that often, but when he is, it's just a place that he can have his stuff set up. So anyway, that immediately cut our overhead almost in half. So that was like step one was like, how do we lower the overhead? So that this is something that I can move forward with and just know, you know, so that was the first thing that helped tremendously that, you know, and the other thing too, is like, we're still doing, I still do work with a lot of those legacy artists. And I started early working with Wynn with some of these bands, just, you know, as a way to so they, He'd be able to introduce me to them and sort of gain a trust, let them, let them know that I, I work closely with him. And so even like, you know, eight, nine years ago, I was working with some of these bands that now are coming back that I'm working with. And a couple of which, like, I'm going to be mixing a, uh, a Black Sabbath, like a live Black Sabbath record in a couple of months. So we still do those projects. But one of the things I, I realized even then is that those sorts of projects are timed. Like they are going to run out like farter Black Sabbath Dio, like there's still a huge legacy for those artists and they will go on for a long time and we've cultivated that. But I don't really see that as necessarily being like the future of this business. 
I see it as being like the local community. And there's so much local talent, like here in what we call the South Bay, where we're located is actually like 30 miles south of Hollywood, Los Angeles. So even though it seems like we're, oh, it's a big city, we're, we're really not. We're sort of like the only studio like this in a really like far radius. So the one thing I started realizing is that a lot of, there's so much talent around here. And as I was going out to shows and I was talking to artists, you know, they knew who we were, but they felt like almost nervous to, to ever approach us. They're like, oh yeah, we know Total Access, but we can't afford it there. And I was like, that's interesting. Like that to me was like, there's something here that needs to either change or we need to figure out a way to make sure that we can get like amazing talent into the studio and not make them feel like they're being alienated because they can't afford it. So they have to just do everything at home or they have to go to some like local place that's cheaper that maybe doesn't have the experience that we do just because they're not ready for us. So I came up with something that has worked. And again, this will not work for everybody, you know, and I sort of stumbled into it, but it's worked really well for us, which is that we do project and song quotes and hardly ever do book rate by the hour. And that has changed everything. And the reason for it is if, you know, I tell like a young band when they come in and they say, well, how much do you charge? Which is like, if someone calls and asks that, first of all, I always try to get them into the studio. I never just say on the phone, well, we're $125 an hour because you're probably not going to get that business. It's not helpful. You know, there just sounds like a lot of money, <laughs> you know, like, well, that's going to be a fortune. So I'll call somewhere else until they give me a lower number. We'll never win that bid. And we don't try to. So the thing that I found, though, is that if we're to offer a package like, you know, yeah, we'll do three songs for you guys. We're going to figure out a song rate that makes sense. And that includes everything. It includes all of the crew production, the recording, editing, mixing, mastering. You leave with something that's commercially competitive and you're never going to have to apologize for it. It's going to just be great. And that's it. And that number is still like high, but it's, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot less scary than doing the hourly thing. And man, it started working and that caught on like wildfire. And that's, that's like 90% of the business that we do now. Yeah. So I've got, I got a ton of notes here for this. So a thing that is interesting is that with the reputation that you've had and, and the amount of time you've been around and the business that was built there when you came in as a legacy business that comes with legacy issues. I have a couple of software companies and this is the same thing you see in the software world. They call it like legacy code. Something that was built into the app long, long ago. Airlines are notorious for this. Delta's built on like old, old, old code, all their booking systems. And it is the reason why it occasionally just craps out out of nowhere and then you're stranded, right. in, stranded <laughs> in Atlanta. It's the reason, it's legacy code. It's these legacy issues. So you have these same similar legacy issues. And I wrote a few of them here and this is just interesting for anyone kind of following along. Even if you're not a legacy a studio, which I hope a few are listening right now because a lot of these people have not made these changes that you've talked about making. One was just legacy overhead, meaning you have those expenses that have been piling up over the years. And you you found a really good way to get rid of one of those issues, which was extra space you weren't using. So you you turned that isolation room into a personal suite for the for the other producer. And that literally cut your overhead in half, which is always a good thing. That means if you have money in the that money now lasts twice as long. If you make no income, you can live twice as long without going under. And the fun thing about being a business is we don't really play in this world to win. We're not like a winner take all kind of business like it is in like the 80s East Coast old school business practice. We play something called an infinite game. We're playing a game that we're essentially just trying to keep playing. 
And so if you can cut your overhead in half, that means you can play twice as long and it's twice as easy to keep playing this game so that we don't have to give up or file for bankruptcy or something worse. So you reduce overhead. And I think anyone listening right now can take this to heart because the longer you're around, the more legacy costs you incur. And a good example in the first place to look for anyone listening right now is go look at all the piled up subscriptions that you have that you're no longer using right now. Like Steve, I know if you went through your bank account right now, and I know I, if I did right now, I'm going to find some some expenses that I have to cancel because I don't use anymore. And that's an example. Every year when I do taxes, I do that. I'm like, how did I pay $49 a month for that thing that I never used or used once and then forgot? And so, yeah. So just as a legacy studio, you have, you have even harder things to deal with. It's, it's easy to cancel software typically, but to deal with extra space that you're not, that you're underutilizing, that's a much harder thing to figure out. And I'm glad you were able to do that. Second, second legacy issue that you've experienced so far was clients, like these legacy clients are moving on to other things or they're just retiring or something else where they're not really, they're not really going to be coming back to you forever. So you've got to think through what's the next step, which is attracting new clients, the new wave, the new younger artists, which leads to the third legacy issue that you had to deal with, which was your own reputation was working against you, which meant you had such good clout, such good positioning even, that you were actually pushing people away because you were almost too high value. And people assume that because you're a legacy studio with a big, big console in there and really nice live rooms, that you're going to be way out of price range for them. And so you did something uh, interesting that I, I, I love, I practice, I preach, I tell everyone in the world, you went to a flat rate pricing. You were doing packaging pricing focused on something that we call pricing based on outcome, not hours. And that's, that's kind of the old school way of, of studios being ran, which is you just price per hour and you had like a, an hour rate or a day rate. And that's just how they paid. Well, younger artists don't want to do that. And the reason is they're not paying for hours. They're paying for an outcome. And if they come into your studio and you're charging, just call it a hundred bucks an hour. I don't know what your rates would have been had you not moved to, to packaging, even if they end up paying the same or more for flat rate, they at least know what to expect. No one wants to go into the studio on an hourly rate, especially an hourly rate that high, not having any clue when that clock is going to stop. Yeah. And not to, to cut you off, but 100% correct. And it, it also changes the environment when an artist comes in and it's an hourly rate that they've locked themselves into. I, I find regardless of who they are and how many times they've done it, it just changes like the urgency in a way that's not actually productive towards the outcome. Like it makes everything feel like, well, this has to get done in a certain period of time because we can't go over budget as opposed to let's chase that one. That's a great idea, man. Like let's chase that. And it might take two hours to set that up, but that's okay. Cause that's, that's part of what you're paying for, you know? Yeah. So we had, we had Mike McDermott, the uh, CEO and founder of fresh books on the podcast on episode 165. And he was a big proponent of aligning your incentives when you're working with a client. And when you charge per hour, their incentive is to get done as quickly as possible. And your incentive is to give the best outcome as possible because you know if you have a great outcome, then they're going to, they're going to A, be happier with the outcome and B, they're going to refer other people to you. And so your incentives are aligned or misaligned when you're pricing hourly because you're fighting each other, but they're aligned when you have a flat rate because you now still want to give them the best the best possible result. And they are willing to put in the work without rushing things because they're trying to stop the clock so that it cuts off the bleeding of their bank accounts. <laughs> exactly. So with this change, as you, as you, as you came into this role, what were some of the challenges that, that you came across as trying to, were there any, if and I don't want to project here, but were there, were there any things that you had to push back on that, that, that Wynn wasn't really willing to do or that Wynn was hesitant on? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, first of all, 
it is always, I know for some people it's always difficult, like working with family. In our case, it's, it's actually always been fairly easy for the two of us because I know Wynn has always wanted to make this work for us and for me moving forward, even though I was completely unaware for most of my life that I feel like I was sort of being like groomed in this direction of like, this is probably where he's going to go. So I had no idea. I was just like, I'm going to be guitar player guy. But I think the whole time, like when knew, like, I, this is what's going to probably wind up happening. So, but even with that said, there's definitely sort of the, like, you know, the, the old dog new trick thing. And I think part of it was like, like one of the first things aside from what we talked about with getting the, um, the extra states sort of taken care of in the studio. One of the first other things that I did was like, looked around and thought to myself, as like an artist or someone that played guitar in different studios growing up, one of the things that was always a turnoff is when you walk into a studio and one of two things, one, it feels either like really clinical, like you're in a dentist's office, like that always freaked me out or two, like it's just gross, you know, and we'll talk about this even later, what, you know, about like the rehearsal business that I'm opening and, and how that plays into that as well. But not that this was either because we always did a great job making it feel vibey, but I feel like it was like sort of hippie vibey, but not seen all the way through. Like the control room had these awesome tapestries that were hung, but they were just like hanging by like thumbtacks. Like it wasn't actually. So we decided to do like a full remodel of the studio. And that took a little bit of, you know, it took a little bit of, of urging him just to say like, Hey, I, I know this is going to be the right move. Like we need to invest in making sure that this is like the best version of what we're already doing. So we invested in doing that and we made sure now like the control room had, we have these like Moroccan lamps that are hanging and we have like all the tapestries are paneled around the room and it just looks really clean. The bathroom's really clean. And, and even something as simple as having a really clean bathroom, like with, you know, pre COVID of course, like towels that people could wash their hands on and that we have like washed every week instead, just like little things that make the experience for someone that come in say like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Like I literally had people say to me, man, I can't tell you how many studios I've been to. This is the cleanest bathroom I've ever been in. <laughs> you know, it is like silly as that is, that's big. Like that's those little things make people feel like they're, they're more comfortable spending in an environment like that. So we did that. And then we had an anniversary party at the studio where I invited some like local press and just like a ton of local bands and people that I'd made connections with over the years just so that they could see the space. And that was so helpful because I feel like a lot of times people call the studio and they ask like, oh, you guys are still there. You know, it's like, like they know of us, but they're, and that was like, every time someone would say that, it was like a punch in the stomach. I'm like, it's great that they're calling, but at the same time, they're like, oh my God, I'm so happy to hear that you guys are still in business. So like, we need to figure out a way to raise local awareness. So that was another hurdle that we had to overcome. Yeah. So I'm laughing at, you're still alive. Like, yeah, you're still there. <laughs> yeah. So we'll discuss some of that. I also, I, I want to talk about the, um, again, I, I just, I love taking notes here in this stuff because A, I hate podcasts that interrupt constantly with the host is interrupting constantly. And B, I don't want to forget stuff that I want to go back to when I'm talking to you. So there's, there's one thing I want to talk about right now, which was being better than everyone else. And you, you did something, you said something like, just the small things like a clean, a clean bathroom with clean towels, which is such a stupid thing to talk about, but it, it actually shows a really important thing that like most people don't even do the basics when it comes to keeping their clients happy. Like you said, people, they, they like have a really sterile environment, like a dentist office, or they're just, they keep it trashed because they're just like, they, all they want to do is get stoned and make music and they don't care about the, like how the cleanliness. So there's like, there's a very happy medium between like the creative 
trash mess of the like the the natural creative that doesn't want to ever clean up and the over sterilized like commercial facility that has to be pristine and perfect like there's a nice balance which i think you've struck pretty well but people don't even do the basics and most people are bad at what they do so just by doing the bare minimum it actually goes a really long way towards making clients happy making them feel comfortable which makes a better performance which makes them want to come back to you again and again and again and and i think you know that inherently which is why you would you push for this remodel so let's talk about that remodel for a second because i think this is something that i've seen conversations i've seen people do remodels and i've seen it done wrong and i have seen it done right and i'm i'm curious what your thoughts were when you guys discussed how you wanted to approach this remodel because those can get incredibly expensive and out of hand if you don't think that this is the right way because people want to do everything with no ROI in mind or they want to do it as cheap as possible with without the right without the client in mind. So how did you guys approach this remodel conversation and budget? Yeah, so I, I just started putting a list together of the things just looking around the studio that I thought could work more efficiently or that might enhance the experience of someone that's going to be working in the studio. And I mean, the first thing is we had a ton of gear, so it's not like a run out and just like buy the next hot thing because there's always going to be that. We don't need that. We have plenty. We have all that we need in, in that facility. And of course, there's always times that you get things, but that wasn't a part of what we needed for this remodel. But part of what we did need was some of that gear over the years needed to be serviced, you know, and that was one of the things that I, I started seeing was that, you know, not to mention, you know, not to get into the nerd gear zone. You know what we do when you get there. I know what you do. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to say it just because I want it. I want to hear it. You want the, okay, we, we retired, we retired, uh, we call it now the gear lust alert. That's what we renamed it. We, uh, okay. We good. retired that after we switched to six figure creative, but we might bring, <laughs> we might bring it back for you, man. That's awesome. But yeah, so we have, you know, in the control room, like a rack with all these compressors as, as one would expect. And, you know, we had like, say, three 1176s, right? But like one of them wasn't working and one of the other ones had a light that was off. And then in the console, a bunch of the lights would intermittently switch. Just like little things that weren't affecting our workflow because, you know, after being, owning a studio, running a business, you start knowing what all of those skeletons are and you learn how to just work around them. Like, cause you can't always have everything functioning at a hundred, otherwise you'd never get any work done. But so I started making a list of those things that I thought it'd be great just to not have those, those issues, you know? So first was just like, enhancing what was already there as far as gear uh, is concerned. The second thing was, like we talked about, just some of the aesthetic uh, issues, um, which weren't really like huge issues. They were small fixes, but we have a great vocal booth that had like no vibe to it whatsoever. It was just like a room that was inside of a live room. So we did the, the same sort of branding idea in the control room of having these like really cool tapestries paneled all the way around. We did the same thing in the vocal booth. We hung this like Moroccan lamp. So we started putting this list together anyway of all these things that none of them were like exceedingly expensive, but we just sort of went back and forth and thought about like, well, how much are we willing to spend on this? Like, what do we think would be like a good, a good place at least to start? And, and that's what we worked on. We put new flooring in the live room, just things that we knew like walking through, like this needs to get fixed. This would be great if it was, you know, different. We got a better coffee machine. We now like we have, you know, an awesome like an espresso so people can make espressos for themselves if they're. Again, it's those like little things like the clean towels and the the coffee and that just that sometimes people nickel and dime in businesses and they don't understand that it actually costs you nothing to offer that and it makes the world a difference. Yeah, so I, I have always been big on not nickel and diming clients. And the reason is it takes virtually nothing, like you said, to create a really magical 
memorable experience. And I'm going to use, I don't know why I'm going to go here with this. This is so left field, but there is a, there's a company called SoulCycle. Have you ever heard of this, Steve? Of course. Yeah. yeah. They've been around for a while now, <laughs> Yeah, but they do something in the fitness industry that is like crazy. At least when they started is they did not have people on recurring payments like a lot of gyms do these days, but they still built themselves to a ridiculous level because all they did and all they cared about from the very beginning, the founders cared about the experience the person had when they were in the gym at SoulCycle. So literally every single thing they created was with the experience in mind. And they wanted an experience that was so damn good that people would tell others about it. And that would create that viral effect where you have to come in here. You have to experience this. You have to see this. I have to go back. I feel so good when I'm here. And, and I think that any creative can take that same approach to their businesses and their client interactions, especially in a recording studio where you were there for so long. And I think that so few including myself years ago when I was still actually producing bands in the studio before I kicked them out and focused on mixing and mastering. When I still had bands in the studio, I did do a lot of things that people didn't do, but there were so many more things that I could do if I only thought about how was the client experience here. But I, but I, I will say the one thing I got right was I never nickel and dimed them. I had things for them to do like video game systems and tons of video games. And I had like, you know, I had waters and drinks for them. And I had, I did have clean bathrooms and I even had a place for them to stay at the studio. So they didn't have to get a hotel. So I did a lot of things right, but there was so much more I could have done for relatively virtually no money at all. If I would have just put the damn effort in. And I think Again, Steve, you inherently understand a lot of this stuff, but so many people don't. And this is actually another issue that people in the legacy era have when they had so much success with such little effort back in the day, effort on the business side. They were just, you just had to be good at what you did. You have a lot of expensive gear and then you get a couple of big names and then you just ride that wave into the sunset. And that's how it used to be. That's not really how it is anymore with a few exceptions, but that's really not how it is anymore. So you really have to focus more on the customer experience. When the supply demand curve changes, you have to change the way you do your business and and all this to say, the experience your client has any, with any interaction, especially in person, matters more than anything. 100%, man. I mean, that's really what people, I feel like that's, that is at the end of the day what they're paying for. Of, co- of course, they need and want and desire to lead with a product that's commercially competitive and is hopefully going to do for them, move their career down the line. But I feel like the only thing that really makes makes it any different than them recording anywhere else or aside from, of course, like the person you're working with is the experience. Like they are paying for the experience. They, and you're, you're 100% right. The little things make so much of a difference with that. I'm still learning all the time, but I, I, I think that I'm not quite sure why so many people seem to forget that or they nickel and dime with things that are obvious. Like you said, with having like video games in the lounge or like things just to keep it just makes it seem like such a fun place to be while they're there. Aside from being creative and making music, there's, you know, there are other activities and then you can go in the kitchen and there's coffee and the bathroom is really clean. And you have like all of these really obvious things that I think work in a lot of other businesses. I mean, especially like these days, I feel like in newer, you know, like marketing and tech businesses, you know, if you ever walk inside one of them, they have all of those things. They have nap pods for their. Co- yeah, exactly, <laughs> man. They're like, they haven't figured out. Yeah. We actually put a, a replay episode, uh, a few episodes back, 174, how you're sabotaging your business with these five toxic mindsets. One of those toxic mindsets was the scarcity mindset. And and I think that's the root of why people don't do the most that they can do. Some of it's just sheer ignorance. Like you don't think about doing some of these things and that's okay. Like not everyone thinks through the client experience because, because again, we got into this because of passion and we're just focused on 
the the act of being creative itself instead of the client experience. This is part of being a business owner and, and growing and learning. But the other side, the reason that people nickel and dime is you know you need those things, but you're afraid to let them go because it costs you money. It might've cost you 30 cents for that in espresso, but you don't want to give those away for free, right? Like that's scarcity mindset and that stops people from, from being a go-giver. We had uh, a really, really good conversation on episode 153 with Bob Berg, the author of The Go-Giver. He's the person who came up with the phrase, The Go-Giver. Uh, like go listen to that episode, go read the book, The Go-Giver, if you struggle with this, because it is, it is one of the most crucial things as a solo business owner, as a creative, working with clients that have to come back to you and pay you money in the future or refer clients to you. Being a go-giver is the only way to be successful in, in the modern era where the, the speed of communication and the speed of learning about people, how our people are treated is so, so fast. Like you won't, you won't make it. So let's shift gears here a little bit and talk about, um, you made a lot of these changes with the studio. And if there's any changes you think are worth continuing to talk about, make note, we'll come back to those. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about where your next client will come from? Most freelancers don't because most freelancers, number one strategy for getting new clients is something called hope marketing. And if that sounds like you, you're not alone. Most freelancers think that just by putting out great work, clients will come banging down your door to hire you. Now, while you obviously do need to be good at what you do, we both know that this strategy does not work. Otherwise, your calendar would be 100% booked solid with amazing projects from your ideal clients. So to help you with this fight against hopium addiction, I'm excited to announce that our flagship coaching program, Clients by Design, has finally opened up applications again. This transformational coaching journey is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made just for you. We'll do a deep dive into your business to see what's missing, and we'll lay out a step-by-step -step roadmap to guide you over the next six to eight months. And here's the best part. We don't just give you the plan and send you on your way. We give you personal one-on-one -on -one help so you never get stuck. And we make sure you actually follow through with something called our absolute accountability system. So if you're ready to stop relying on hope marketing and ready to start building your own client acquisition machine so you can get a steady flow of clients, then it's time to step up and apply for clients by design and see if you're a good fit. Just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. And I'll be the first to say that this program is not for everyone. So far, we've only accepted about 25% of those who apply. So if you want to find out if you're a good fit, just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach and fill out the application. Now here's our show. But you're making a lot of these changes, especially with the pricing and the, the renovation. And the question now is like, how, how are you getting the word out to the public about this, about these pricing changes, about the new way you're doing things, about being the, the new fresh face on the old legacy brand, you know, like how are you getting the word out about this? Because you, you told me before this interview that like before you were even on the, the website had just said coming soon for over a decade. Yeah. I mean, perhaps even longer when I first met Wynn and I, I, I looked up, I found him online and found all these, you know, thing, articles and interviews and discography and the all music thing. And I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. And then of course went to, I found the website and went there and it was just like a blurry screen <laughs> that said coming soon. It's, it's not Wynn's fault. I mean, he's, he did so many things right with this business, but it's, it's back to your point of like the legacy problem thing, which is that he opened the studio in 81. He was in his twenties. He had immediately success, like within a couple of years of opening, he did his first docking record, which went platinum. And then after that had great white and then guns and roses. And then, you know, and then the nineties wave was sublime and no doubt. And it just continued on this way. So uh, he's the author of the fairy tale life, basically. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> Like it was really just, it was like a legacy built on word of mouth. And that was really it. There was no online presence. And so that was like one of the first things. Now our website admittedly is not perfect. I built it myself. It's actually going to be 
renovated again soon. And I'm having someone do that for us instead of me trying to do it myself. But I got all of the basic information that we needed up on the site and it works. And we have oftentimes now when people call, they're calling because they either found the website because they typed in local recording studio, whatever we popped up. There's pictures of the space. They can see, you know, the artists we worked with contact information. We get ton, like that's a huge part of where we're getting work from now is just submissions from the site and for having a Yelp presence, which love it or hate it. That's just a huge part of, you know, where business is right now. And a lot, a lot of people will call saying that they found us on Yelp. So there is that. So that was like kind of the step one was like, okay, we need to have some sort of an online presence and having that party that we did helped. I invited someone from a local newspaper that did um, a really like great spread and just having that like available online when you type the studio in was super helpful. But the other thing for me, and this goes even like further back. So about, you know, 10 or so years ago was creating certain relationships like locally with the, so where we live, there's like, there was pre COVID, unfortunately it, it has closed since, but there was like one great local venue. And we also have, you know, Los Angeles, a rock radio station called K rock, which is like the big, you know, radio uh, program out here. And they have, they have a show on Sundays called locals only where they play like the best new talent. A lot of times like stuff that they play will wind up being like signed artists. And it sort of feels like, why are you like, why are you guys playing this? It already is. They already sort of had legs on them, but in any event, it's kind of a mix of like what is already sort of working and then just like up and comers. So anyway, I set out to create relate and some of these relationships I already had like at the venue. I'd already played there over the years, but I reached out to the owner of the venue and let him know like what we were doing. Please come to this party that we're going to have the studio. I'd love for you to see the space again. I know you've been here in the past and just let you know what we're doing. There's also a lot of local record labels, like even in the South Bay, we invited them to come and see the space, let them know what we're doing. Things have changed. Your artists can absolutely afford to work here. We'll work with your budgets. Like we'll make sure, you know, so all of that happened and started getting some local bands in the studio. And one of them did a song that wound up on this K-Rock program is locals only. And the woman that ran it was Kat Corbett. And she's sort of like a, a huge industry figure out here. And I started a relationship with her and she was like, Hey, that, this is a great song. Anytime that you have anything that is this great, send it to me and I'll just fast pass it. And if I like it, I'll play it on the show. And that over the last few years has sort of turned into something where now local artists, like I remember being at a, at a venue a few months ago and someone, someone pointed at me and they were like, you're the guy that gets bands on K-Rock. And it made me laugh because I'm like, man, that's hilarious. Like not real, like sort of, but not, you know, it's so I think just having some of these like working on cultivating relationships that were either already there or just needed cultivating was part of the success of moving this forward. You mentioned something that is, I hope people didn't miss because it's really easy to, to zone out and think like, Oh, he just has all these connections. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep doing my dishes here and not think of, not listen to what he's talking about. But Steve, Steve is, is clever and he's doing, he did something that most most entrepreneurs, freelancers, especially studio owners won't do. And that is be a social hub, be the center of social, the old school social network, which was like a network of friends being the hub of that. The center of that is incredibly valuable because you are literally creating value for people. So I'll give you an example of myself. Cause I, I just love to talk about myself. No, so, <laughs> when me and my wife got married, like one of our goals was we wanted to make sure we were a, a good solid hub of our friend group. Because if you don't have a good solid hub, the center of the group, like things don't happen. Like hangouts don't happen. Dinners with friends, holiday things, parties, like all of these things don't happen. And the, the lack of that thing happening 
is a lack of value being created in the world. Connections, really good conversations, really being filled up emotionally. And so we, we make it a point to do that. We do, we do events, we do things, we, we bring our friends together as much as we can, especially now, now more than back in 2020, but before that, even we were in some of these things as well. And this creates value. So I'm saying like in the, in the business world, it's the exact same way. I see this all over the place. There's that, there's that, like the one freelancer or the one person who's like the social hub or a center area for people to gather. They put the time, effort, and energy of connecting people and they reap the rewards in a magnificent way because they're willing to put in the work. And when, when people say networking is a way to get clients, I shudder because I hate that. I was just going to say to you, like the, the term networking makes me cringe, especially yes. out here in Los Angeles where every when, you know, there's always that preconceived notion that everyone here has like another agenda and that they're just trying to do things for themselves. That's LA for you. <laughs> In some ways it very much is, man. And I'm originally an East Coaster. So Nashville too. Yeah, I know. Totally. But yeah, you're right. The, the, the term networking is just so cringe inducing. And I think really what it is, is because people will ask me, man, how do I make that connect? Or how do I get that? You know, I'll, I'll be working with an artist and they're like, I saw this artist that you worked with is playing this of this festival. Like, how do they get that? How do I get there? How do I network with those people? And I'm like, you don't, you just focus on cultivating relationships. Like instead of worrying about those things, like worry more about being great and cultivating relationships with people that you already have. And I think that's, that's like the giant misstep for people is they always think that it's someone they don't know already. But a lot of times it's like starting with what you already have and then just slowly going out from there, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I, I want to give a really good example just to really like drive this point home. There's a guy here. I mean, there's tons of people here. I'm not, I don't want to say this is the only person doing this, but there's a guy here in Nashville by the name of Billy Decker. I'm going to give him a shout out here. He was on episode 13 of our podcast. And that episode was titled how social skills help Billy Decker dominate the Nashville mixing scene. So he's a country music mixing engineer here in Nashville. And he was like, I, he might've, he actually might've been our first guest on the podcast. I, I, I'm not, I don't quote me on that, but we, we typically don't have, especially in the first 150 episodes, we never had guests. It was just me and my co-host talking. And so Billy Decker is a master of networking. I'm using that in air quotes here. If you're not watching the video on YouTube, he's a natural, a natural networker because Billy Decker is incredible at nurturing. That's really what networking is. When people say networking is the solution to getting clients, what they really mean is nurturing their relationships, but not just nurturing. Billy Decker is also a master at building brand new relationships. And he does it because he is an absolute open book and he is open to say, he just says yes to everything. I don't know how he gets anything done because like <laughs> I send people to Billy, like they're like, oh, I'm new to town. I'm trying to get into country music, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, have you talked to Billy yet? Like I'll just send people their way and he'll like bring them over to the studio and meet him and have like, and what's, what's crazy is because he's such a go-giver and he's so open and so honest and so nice and so caring and, and also good at what he does. That's an important part of that. Because of that, he builds and nurtures these relationships to the point that when these people 10 years ago that were new to town and just getting started and Billy Decker was an open book to them and brought them into the studio and showed them around and was super nice to them. Like they now remember that. And when it comes time, somebody in my circle needs country music mixing their songs mixed or whatever. I'm going to recommend Billy Decker hundred percent of the time. And that's how he stays booked up. That's how he has opportunities. That's how he has his own plugins because he did that exact same thing with his business partners who put out his plugins and so forth and so on. So I'm not going to talk on that anymore, but that's what we mean by networking. It's just nurturing. It's just building relationships genuinely with an open heart, open mind, open hands, and not trying to clasp I'm using hand motions here if you're watching on YouTube. If you're not, go watch our, our interviews on YouTube. So any thoughts on that, Steve? I, I, I talk too much on, when I get into my, I'm on my soapbox right now. 
No, no, me too, man. I dig it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, let's shift gears here because I, I, want, I want to talk about this before you wrap this up. And that is expanding into other revenue streams. This is something that a lot of people do too early or they don't do at all, which is also a mistake. And, and I'd, I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on what you're doing. And then I have some follow-up questions as to what you're, after, after you tell us what you're doing uh, for other revenue streams. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about is that aside from having bands come to the studio and you know producing songs, mixing, mastering, all of the, the basic obvious services, we also in the last like 15 or so years have done quite a bit of music licensing. And again, it's that world is is funny. It's extremely relationship driven. But I started doing this, you know, pretty much straight out of college. I started working for this company called APM, where I write, you know, sync music for them. And a lot of times, you know, those deals are the kind of thing where, you know, you're not necessarily all the time like making any sort of upfront. It's just like a back end sort of thing, which might work when you're like 19 years old. But obviously, as it goes down, unless you're just putting so much content into the machine, it might not make sense to even have that be a part of what your business model is. But because I did so much content when I was younger and I was able to sort of cultivate this relationship with this company, in the last like five or six years, they've been, they've expanded their business to doing custom content. So they'll have like a client that needs a song for a commercial, but they don't want to have to pay like the, you know, the master fee for using. So they'll have they need to hire someone to say, like, do a sound alike, or they need, I just recently did this um, awesome audio book called Margarita in the Spotlight. It was a, about this like young country band and they needed a bunch of original music for it because it's an audio book. So they wound up hiring me to do it. And those games wound up being fantastic, like not only musically and creatively, but also financially super rewarding on the front end. So, and that is just from years and years of like, doing all of this work with these guys. So that's been a revenue stream, just the licensing thing that's been super helpful for us. I was going to say music licensing is the area that so many people I, I see wanting to get into that. And the, the problem, and here's what I, I want to talk about your, also your rehearsal space here in a second, your upcoming revenue stream. But I want to, I want to talk on this for a second. Music licensing is an interesting beast. It is so lucrative. Like you said, it can be, but it is also incredibly relationship driven. And this is when I say people trying to get into revenue streams, before they're ready. I see so many people saying, this is something I'm working on while, and, and, and so I'm just going to, I'm going to soapbox for really quick. I'm so sorry to do this with a guest on, but people move to other revenue streams too early. I'm not saying you do this because you, you actually have been successful with this and you cultivated relationships. I'm just for anyone listening right now. And this is, this is for my listeners. They struggle in one area, maybe their studio, maybe they're a designer, maybe whatever it is they, they're struggling with to get clients. They're not making enough to make ends meet. And so they look to these other areas as a means to supplement their income. And what happens is the same skill set they're lacking to be successful in, in revenue stream number one is going to be the same exact thing that holds them back from being successful in revenue stream number two. Now, if you are successful in revenue stream number one, you can likely take those same skills and be successful to an extent in revenue stream number two. But I just want for anyone listening right now who's like, oh yeah, that's music licensing. I'm going to get into that now because you're, but your studio is failing. Like, don't do that. Like get revenue stream number one figured out. <laughs> so that's Brian on the soapbox, but music licensing, can you talk about, you don't have to give specifics, but like, can you talk about what some of those deals look like and, and how you either negotiate or is it just like, they're going to tell you what to do and how much they're going to pay you. And you just say, yes, thank you, please. And more. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually mostly negotiable. But again, I think that that is just because of years of cultivating and them knowing that they can come to us and we're going to deliver content that they're going to be able to you know, use and it's going to make them look good because in some ways the whole custom content and bottle 
means that they're working really is like a middleman. You know, like you have this licensing company that's just contracting a studio or a composer to create this music, and then they're charging whatever they charge on top of what you're charging. So sometimes it's a hundred, you know, hundred percent or whatever their their fee is. So really, what it is is it's sort of just like we were talking about before. It's just being great and cultivating a relationship. You know, and getting into a point. And as far as like specifics on deals, there are times where. We have to turn stuff down, but usually we'll try and make it work. Like most of the time I will, because it could be anything like they'll call and ask us to do something that's like that gig that I talked about, you know, where it was like for an audio book, we had to do all of this custom content. So I'll try and usually figure out like what, I think it's just like anything, just like any sort of cool custom quote that you're going to come up with, like how much time is this actually going to take? And then just try to figure out sort of like what that might look like if you were to charge something and, and make sure that it's not going to make them go running for the hills, but also more than enough covers your costs and, and makes sense for you. And then sometimes there's like a round of negotiating and well, what's the kill fee, which means what if the client gets it and hates it? You know, is there like any, like if they just say, you know what, we don't want to do this. What do they still owe you for the time that you've already spent? And in which case, usually our kill fee is usually a hundred percent. Like that's something we don't negotiate on because if we're going to put a ton of time and call our contacts and have great players come to the studio, everyone's getting paid. The good news is that we've never had, at least not yet, knock on wood, uh, a, uh, a project where they turned around and said, we hate this. <laughs> so it's like that. But it's good that you have a kill fee in your contract for that. And I think a lot of our listeners right now, they're like, oh, should I have a kill fee in my contracts and my clients? Like likely no, because in most cases, unless you're working with a big corporation, you don't need that sort of protection. And also you're not going to go to collect on that from your client because the last thing you want to do is start suing your clients to collect on, on kill fees. <laughs> that is not how you nurture a relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like they're, they're using a kill fee because they want to get out of the contract. So I'm going to sue them to collect that. No, this just, that's not how it works. I, I would say stay away from that. But this is just something that kind of came to my head. Do you think that's a scalable, a scalable revenue stream for your business? Or do you think that's just so, something you just take on when you get it? Like, is that something that you can actually scale up and, and grow? I think it is. And, and the reason I think so is that because sometimes what will happen and is, you know, instead of just this, this company APM contracting the work from the years of working with them, sometimes some of these companies that they've acted middleman for will reach out directly. And of course, we'll contact APM and say, hey, we just got a call from this company. Is it okay if I take the lead? And they'll say, of course, like you just go ahead and work with them. So I do feel like cultivating that is the same thing as cultivating local talent, where you wind up being like one of the guys that they know they're going to get great content from. So I, I think it's it's definitely a healthy income stream for us. And it's something that's, it's always in the back of my mind is like, how can we scale this up more? But it's never been like the main source. And this is like way off topic for what I wanted to talk about, but I still want to talk about it. So I'm going to bring it up. But do you ever think about like, why, when is it time to focus solely on this new, like exciting revenue stream that seems to be working and going all in to try to scale that up versus maintaining or growing what has worked in the past. Cause that's the, that's honestly going back to the core of this conversation as a legacy studio, you have all these revenue streams that you've kind of tagged along over the years that may be shrinking now. And then you have the new stuff that's kind of coming up. At what point do you just say like, if I put all my focus on this new revenue stream or this, this new area, I'm going to see more success than trying to, to drag along the old stuff with me. Like, do you, is that something that's ever entered your mind or do you think about it? It just keeps me, it keeps me awake. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were sort of joking earlier that when we were first chatting about like the work, work-life balance, which I struggle with. And I, I know a lot of others that do this do as well, but I also, you know, this is sort of such a, a sidestep, but I'm very much like a routine creature. And I believe that all successful people have to have some sort of routine, but 
I, I wake up pretty early every day and I will spend like at least an hour just like making notes about things that I want to think about, you know, like for the coming week or even like bigger picture, like over the course of the next month here, just like some things that need my attention. And, and that, that does come up sort of frequently. I guess I've tried to like think about all of these revenue streams as like zooming out from them instead of it. Like I'm never going to be in a situation where I'm going to be able to put all of my energy into licensing as the main stream because I don't think that that's going to be like the way forward for the studio is like, oh, we're a licensing studio. All we do is work with these companies. But since it's like, you know, a fifth or a quarter of our income or somewhere along those lines, that's about as much attention as I'm able to really give it, you know? And so I, I think it's more for me. And again, I don't know if this would work for everyone or if you have ideas of how I could be doing it better, but I, I zoom out and I think of it as just pushing all of those things that are important to me and that seem to be working forward. And I try to like lose the things that maybe aren't working as well. Yeah. I, I'm not going to comment on it too much because like everyone's priorities are different, especially when we're in a creative field, because we're not just a brick and mortar business that just looks at it as a business. We also have a creative itch that we're scratching. So it's up to us to balance where that, where that is, where like, even if something could be way more lucrative, like you could go all with music licensing, just use that as an example. But that if that doesn't scratch your creative itch, it's really hard to to make that work because yes, it could be more lucrative. Yes, you could go all in with it and get more clients and scale it up and it'd be way better business, but you'll hate it. And it's now just a job and you might as well just got a job somewhere. So I, I understand having to balance that. And maybe even you do enjoy it with it being one fifth of your time, but doing it full time would be miserable. I think you're right, Brian. I think that's actually what it is, is like the reason that it stays as being like one fifth of my attention or whatever number I was throwing out is because that's like as much attention as I really want to give it. We don't believe in just making money to make money. Like that's the, that's the whole thing is it's your business. You have to decide how you want it to be. And like, I, I try my best not to push people in directions solely on a monetary decision. And everyone listening like needs to, to understand that, like don't feel this unnecessary pressure to build your income in an area that you're going to hate. Now don't get me wrong. This is not what I'm saying. I'm here's what, here's what I'm not saying is you don't have to try to do things that stretch you because you're uncomfortable with them. Because you will have to do that if you want this to be an income stream. But I'm just saying, don't blindly chase money is all I'm saying. You will still have to stretch yourself and do hard things. That is inevitable. But you don't have to go into areas and do things that are against your creative soul. So let's shift really quick as we kind of wrap this conversation up. Steve, you were talking about you're, you're in the middle of preparing and about to launch kind of like rehearsal spaces. And I've seen a few studios talk about this and ask questions about the business model behind this. Can you talk about a, like what you're doing with that? And then we can get into some discussions around like the, the numbers behind it, or at least the model behind it. Absolutely. So this has been something that I've thought about for a long time. And there's a couple of reasons behind it. One is just over the years, you know, being a player and you know, being in different cities where you're like, say you're on tour with a band and you're like, you know, you're in Austin because you're going to play at South by Southwest and you just, the band just, just got in and you want to rehearse. So you look up rehearsal studios and there's like two places that you can go to and you pick the one that seems the least gross and you get there and it's still gross and the sound is atrocious and you're fighting through all these things and there's other bands that are, it's just like that has annoyed me to no end that it's so hard to find a place Again, it's sort of like what we were talking about. You know, it seems like there is either the bottom or the very, very top. Like there are places like out here or I guess in New York as well, like SIR or center staging that are crazy expensive. We have some of those in Nashville as well. They're, they're like really, they're more like a way to, to, to prepare for your tour, like for big bands to prepare for a tour. It's not a rehearsal space. They're only fancy in the sense that it's like a lot of space. 
but they're not even like that nice. It's just like you're in an airplane hangar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. here's like 5,000 square feet, you know, like go to town. We have catering if you want it. But yeah, so the other thing, so that's one of the, one of the reasons for doing this. Second is that I've always wanted a space that I could have a band come and do pre-production before they're going to come into the studio and not like, cause a lot of times they're going to come and do pre-pro, but it's like a week before their session. It's not necessarily the day before or five days leading up to sometimes it's a month before if they have other commitments. So I wanted to have a space that I wouldn't feel like I had to like put them in our live room, mic everything up, do this whole to do just to do a rehearsal session so I could give them some notes. And again, what I would do for years is I would have to pick a place in town, drive out there, you know, 30 something miles to a place that was gross. It sounded terrible. There's other bands there. There's just all of these distractions. So, which by the way, 30 something miles in LA is like a hundred something miles anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, it is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You have to plan around like eight hours of the day. It's like, well, if it's going to be anywhere between the hours of seven and 10 AM or three and 7 PM, like forget about it. So yeah, so I've been thinking about this for a while, and then this unit came available in the same complex where we are that many, many years ago, Wynn had actually like put a little bit of attention. He had he had subleased it out as like a workspace for someone who was like a pretty well-known session drummer. So he had put a little bit of time and resources into into building this room. And then he wound up, you know, losing the space and became an office, you know, for many years. So these people left and I went to check it out and it is literally the perfect bones for a rehearsal space. Still requires quite a bit of investment, but essentially what we're turning it into, my partner and I that are doing this, is a 1,000 square foot suite. And it's only one rehearsal studio. It's basically the way that I'm comparing it to is like an Airbnb rehearsal suite. So when you book it online, you're going to get an entry code and the door handle has an entry code. The band, we also have a load up door if you need it. You let yourselves in and it's going to be a space where the room is acoustically treated. It's all top of the line gear. It sounds incredible in there and it looks, it's the same branding that we have at the recording studio. So we have the tapestries and the walls, super vibey. There's also like a small writing, sort of like a Nashville writing room inside the space for water and coffee. There's a lounge and TV and video games and the whole exactly like what we talked about before. So it's basically a place that a band can go, whether they're getting ready for a gig or going into the studio and they can spend time distraction free without any other bands and just get work done. And that's what we're doing. So are you doing this in an, like an hourly fee? Or are you doing it a day thing like Airbnb, like per night or per day essentially would be that? Like how is the, how's the pricing going to be set up with this? And keep in mind, anyone listening right now, this is not a proven successful business yet. So like, don't go out there and start mimicking this yet, but it's just interesting to talk about because I like to hear about this and I'll probably bring you on or at least pick your brain on how this turns out in the future. But how are you thinking about pricing this as of right now without, without actually having done this yet? Yeah, so, so one of the things I realized is that again, we're sort of, it's like finding a niche that doesn't really exist. So you're right, it's unproven, but that's sort of been the story of my life is like finding the thing that's not there that seems like people need. So two things happened in the last year and a half during the pandemic is that two of the biggest rehearsal studios in one in the South Bay and one in Los Angeles closed. So there is literally now like no, even like, you know, even in that rehearsal realm that we're not trying to do, which is like, you know, tons of rooms in one building, they just don't exist anymore. So I know that there's a need for this. And I mean, just like, we don't even have the website up for people to book. And I already have bookings for 
when it opens next month. So I, I'm really excited about it. That's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're pricing it, you know, it's higher than the usual. I, I find that most of those hourly places are somewhere in the like 30 to 40 something range, depending on backline and what you need. So we've priced this at $49 an hour with a two hour minimum, hoping that most people are going to be booking this like as half day or full day, which we do have like price breaks if we get into that. And my thinking is that you know, again, we're not trying to alienate like local artists that want to come and have a great space. We're also not trying to cater to everyone because I think that's also when you try to cater to everyone, you wind up catering to no one in some ways, you know? And I feel like I don't want to have 18, 19 year old kids coming in and just like turning everything up to 10 and destroying speakers. Like we're not trying to be that kind of studio. It's really meant to be a place that just sounds great that a band can come and, and focus. So that's, that's what we're starting off as. Yeah. So you, you, here's the thing that I think everyone hopefully noticed was when you talked about what you were creating, you naturally actually went into the why first. And there's a, there's a famous Ted talk, start with why that's, that's kind of the gist of this is like, if you don't understand the why behind launching a new revenue stream or business at all, it's going to be very difficult to understand what you should do and how you should do it. And so by starting with why, starting with understanding the problem and the person you're helping, it it does make it a lot easier to start the business. And just a, a note for anyone listening, like, this, this sort of method, to me, it sounds like it would work really well in a city like LA or possibly even Nashville, but especially New York, cities that don't have a lot of rehearsal space for bands because they live in apartments or places where it's shared living or somewhere you can't make a ton of noise or so really dense housing areas. So that's kind of one thing you have going for you, Steve. Is there, um, is there anything you have in mind as far as how you're going to promote? Are you going to move, are you going to do anything around recurring billing or anything to, in, to get recurring revenue? Like what do you, what do you have in mind for it after you launch it? Yeah. So the, the website's going to be up December 15th and then the opening is January 3rd and we have like an open house sort of party that's coming up in December on the 19th. One of the relationships that I have, that I've cultivated over the years is with a local PR team that works with a lot of like great artists and, and, uh, and he's actually helping me get some press. Like there's already been just since you know, he did something a couple of days ago, put a press release out there, a couple of places that have picked it up online. And so the idea is to get, again, just sort of raise local awareness in the means of, you know, doing some press, like some online, some, you know, some through like local papers and things like that. He's also reaching out to like a lot of the bands that I've worked with and their management, just like letting them know, you know, I mean, one of the bands that we've had in the studio over the years is Pennywise. And for a long time, they would ask us, like, can we rehearse your studio? But it didn't really make sense. Like, it doesn't, our, our model where we are does not make sense for it, for us to turn it into like a rehearsal facility. So this is kind of like a perfect solution for a band like that. And it's also not, you know, you're not going to a center staging or SIR where you're spending $2,000 a day. I mean, it's sort of at like the middle price point. That's great. So I'm thinking like my brain's always doing stupid marketing ideas. And we, we, uh, we interviewed Mike McCallowitz on the podcast a few episodes ago, back on episode 166, the three simple steps for marketing that can't be ignored. So Mike was throwing out some really out of off the wall, crazy ideas for marketing that was interesting. And, and the whole thesis behind it was great marketing is actually something that makes you pause and consider what you're looking at. And so his example he gave in that episode was like at the gym, putting the fat, like fun mirror, house mirror, where you're short and squat and fat, and that's your before photo, and then your after is like the tall, skinny, like thin, and that's the after <laughs> sign. You know, at a, at a, it was for a gym that's in a really high traffic area, so it made sense, obviously. But I'm thinking through in your in your uh, rehearsal space, and this honestly would work for any studio, recording studio too. 
is having, we, we were going to do this in one of our Airbnb themes. We were, we almost signed a lease here in Nashville and this is before all the permit changes here. We, we were going to do a really cool themed Airbnb where we had like themed rooms for like um, Johnny Cash and like other kind of like themed bedrooms and, and stuff for like just Nashville themed stuff. And one of the things we were going to do is have a really cool photo booth area where it's just like a tripod for your phone. We don't have a camera there, but we have the whole set and, th- and everything around it to, for people to take fun photos when they're traveling to Nashville. And I think it'd be, It'd be interesting just to try this to see if you have like a themed but branded kind of backdrop and fun thing for bands to uh, while they're rehearsing just to just to get a stupid photo for social media. That is a really good idea. I to, I'm gonna have to think on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it may be totally totally off brand for what you're trying to do there, but it makes sense in the Airbnb. The other the other day, my partner was like, "I'm gonna try to you know, is there any way to to bring in like VR sort of like the, that whole space into what we're doing?" Like, <laughs> you know, I think we start with where we are, but I'm sure we'll find something that's going to be funny and clever, but you know. So I, I try not to talk about theoretical stuff that is unproven. So I'll, I'll kind of, right. I'll kind of end it right here, <laughs> but dude, I just want to say thanks for coming on here and chatting with us about all this. And, and I'm excited for what you got going on in the future with both, um, both the studio and the rehearsal space. Cause that's, it's always exciting when you have something new coming up, but uh, where can people go to learn more about you and get connected with you and, and, and all that fun stuff? Yeah, so we're we're aligned, obviously, on, on Instagram. I am at, at Seabornest, or you can look us up at, at TA Recording, at TA Rehearsal, and then the website's tarecording.com, tarehearsal.com. The rehearsal one's going to be launched here just in, a, in the next week or so. Awesome. So that all those links will be in our show notes with the exception of the one that's probably not live yet, the rehearsal space. But for anyone listening, yeah, go check out those links in our show notes. And until next time, we'll see you all next week, bright and early Tuesday morning. Bye. Thanks so much for having me, Brent. See ya.